Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and children of all ages. This is Robert Itis with Plants and Their Friends. And we are in the caboose on Main Street in downtown Marshall um, on a very cloudy day. And I have with me, uh, my guest today is Mark Williams, and we're going to be talking about fermentation. Uh, I wanted to remind everybody that uh, Plants and Their Friends goes on on Saturday at 10 o'clock, and then it's repeated at Tuesday at 8 p.m. Uh, and you can get a uh, the blah, uh, podcast on my website, www.ncgoldenseal.com, or uh, a link off of uh, the Warts uh, website. Uh, so either way, you can... Uh, Get old episodes, and you can uh, catch up with some of the activity that we've done. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, invite Mark back. Uh, I think this is his fourth visit to Wart and uh, Plants and Their Friends, and we will um, we will start uh, by him uh, saying hello to y'all. All right. Howdy, everybody. And Robert, thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, this is a uh, topic that is uh, pretty uh, upfront right now uh, because uh, the term probiotics is upfront right now for a lot of people. Uh, and uh, there's good probiotics and there's bad probiotics just like everything else in life this uh, is um, uh, one of the uh, areas that uh, Mark who is executive director of Plants and Healers International uh, which is located in Weaverville and I presume that's .org mm -hmm. their website's plantsandhealers.org yep right and um, uh, let's uh, start uh, this discussion uh, in my memory with uh, Frank Cook. And um, uh, were you at, uh, at a point when Frank was starting to do this with uh, some of our friends, Sandor? 
<clears throat> yeah, so Frank Cook definitely is one of my greatest influences in regards to fermentation and um, certainly one of both his teachers and my great teacher and friend and colleague and um, kind of the dean of fermentation for the country, Cinder Katz, who lives across the border in Tennessee. Um, both of them combined are certainly some of my early influences back in the early 2000s. And um, yeah, I would say honey wine in particular, known as mead, M-E-A-D, is uh, certainly a tradition that Frank really brought strongly, I think, to the area here of Western North Carolina and influenced a lot of people in that regard. And um, I would say a big influence on him and to some degree Sander as well as Patrick Ironwood, who lives also over in Tennessee at the Sequatchie Valley Institute. And uh, so those are some of the kind of foundational uh, fathers, as it were, of, uh, of fermentation in this area, especially in regards to beverages. But we're lucky that there's a lot of people that uh, have kind of made their stamp in different ways in regards to fermentation. Yeah, I, I remember um, one of our favorite uh, gatherings uh, of the summer uh, permaculture gathering, Southeast Permaculture Gathering, uh, and they brought him in uh, one time to uh, uh, do a circle and, uh, and him being Sandor at this in this yeah, regard, yeah, yeah, and uh, out on the deck in the, uh, where the kitchen is, uh, and that um, kind of opened up my eyes past sauerkraut into uh, a whole new veggie experience that could happen in fermenting foods right it's a huge range of products that can be created through fermentation and seems like pretty much every different uh group of people around the world has some type of tradition related to fermentation often uh just as a form of food preservation in particular and the southeast permaculture gathering that happens at the arthur morgan school the first week of August, there's always pretty much some component of teaching about fermentation. And uh, they have what are called affinity groups or circles versus classes. And so people that have an affinity towards fermentation will gather and, and compare notes and often create something. And then oftentimes as part of the food offerings, there's going to be some ferments that are made by uh, participants and sauerkraut is a big one yeah in regards to that it is uh i uh i happen to be uh of the tribe that is as a whole a lot of problems with uh, vinegar mm -hmm. and so um i was never really drawn to it although i circled around the outside of it but i've been getting involved with probiotics uh for a while now, uh, as um, uh, some of the uh, microbials that are necessary in our stomach, and how uh, we have uh, 
uh, an ability to, especially with the antibiotics, to cleanse all of the good and bad out and have to rebuild uh, your your gut flora, uh, so to speak. And this this is an area where uh, uh, the cost of the probiotics could get fairly expensive if they're in pill form. But as fer- fermented foods, the, the cost per se uh, goes down dramatically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's a, a benefit to uh, the uh, plants and their friends' uh, listeners that um, uh, we encourage the uh, building up of good flora in the, in the stomach. And this is just one of the ways of doing it. And so uh, we, we have uh, uh, something, though, that uh, is not taught really uh, in the schools or uh, very, very few of the doctors and MDs have it. And uh, you may get it from a nurse practitioner or somebody who is more into the nutritional part of our bodies. Uh, so we have uh, some way to go now, and and the new the new mindset is uh, to to create that great flora in your body, and and uh, so we're going to go on with um, uh, and when did you start teaching this subject, Mark? Yeah, so. Um it's been it's been an interesting arc with fermentation because uh, like you were saying earlier i definitely had kind of a, an initial exposure to things like sauerkraut even back in the 90s i worked at a place called our place cafe in gainesville florida and we would make tempeh rubens and we also um had a local source of tempeh so i learned a little bit uh about that process and um, we also would have an Ethiopian night. And so um, classic part of Ethiopian food is injera, this um, delicious kind of crepe-like uh, fermented spongy type bread, often made with teff, a flower from Africa. And uh, I kind of would play around with those things and experiment with them by myself and then started facilitating um, classes and workshops also in the late 90s. And um, I would say uh, a memory that really sticks out is working at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, in their kitchen. And they have a whole um, program of various different educational offerings that the workers will give among themselves. And so that was kind of... um, you know, sort of the nascent beginning of it, and then working through my time as a student at Warren Wilson College and a uh, sort of leader in the community around the food system at the cafe and uh, wanting to source as much as we could locally through there and also in combination with the garden that grows a lot of the food at Warren Wilson and also as the uh, director of the eco-dorm the first lead platinum certified dorm in the country. We had a whole kind of educational offering um, 
basically going on through that. And I, as a resident director, was part of the, the programming with it. So that's all in kind of uh, the 2003, 2004 range. And finishing with uh, my degree there and launching into the community as an educator in various different ways, that's kind of been one of my first stock in trades, I would say, in particular working for Juliet Blankaspor in her Chestnut School of Verbal Medicine, in particular when she had that as um, an in-person situation. Now it's uh, all online offerings, but she brought me in in the kind of mid to uh, late 2000s, I guess, to uh, start offering fermentation classes to her annual group of students. And so it's kind of blossomed from that to work with other schools like Corey Pine Shane and the Blue Ridge School of Herbal Medicine and um, definitely at lots of different conferences as well. Well, uh, take the, uh, the audience through uh, what a, uh, a, a weekend or a day would be like, like you had at uh, uh, Herb Mountain uh, uh, recently. Uh, yeah, so it really kind of depends, and I would classify fermentation into a couple big sort of subgroups, and um, one being beverages, and a lot of that being around making alcohol. Of course, there's tons of different kinds of alcohol, from beer to wine to mead, I was talking about earlier, and then the natural progression after alcohol is vinegar, and then, of course, there are lots of other fermented beverages like uh, kvasses and kefirs. And so often I may have just a class just focused on beverages, in particular uh, wines and sodas as well. There's a whole classification of fermented sodas. And then there's all the um, you know more food products like the sauerkrauts and um, all the different kinds of breads and uh, in particular doses and idlis are a real popular one that comes out of the Indian tradition and um, yeah the kimchi and all sorts of things so uh, the one that I did at uh, Herb Mountain Farm was a little bit of a more extended class so uh, it was about four and a half hours long and that gives the opportunity to really delve at least some degree into both those categories and sometimes the class will be much shorter even an hour hour and a half and then I would tend to focus more on the beverage side of things right um, on the food side of things uh, talk a little bit more about the possibilities uh, that uh, folks may not have ventured past sauerkraut. You mentioned a little bit about the bread. Uh, yeah, yeah. well, that's great to just kind of um, try to expand people's horizons. One of my favorite that's indigenous to this local area, I have been taught uh, to pronounce something along the lines of Ganahena. And this is a traditional Cherokee ferment of corn that is a particular type of corn called hominy. And hominy is made through this process called nixtamalization, where you um, take wood ash and you change the pH of the corn. 
And in that process, it makes the corn a complete protein, which is really awesome for one thing. But then that can be mashed and then fermented. And it can really take on almost the consistency and flavor of uh, like a cheddar cheese, but just made out of corn. So that's uh, one that a lot of people aren't familiar with that is local to the area. And uh, kvass is one that I think uh, Sally Fallon really popularized, especially in relation to using beets and whey. But um, it's not like something you would see in the grocery store like you would see kombucha or even jun, which is um, basically like kombucha, but you use honey instead of sugar. And we're lucky to have a local jennery, um, Shanti Jun, uh, which is awesome. And um, yeah, there's just a real wide range, and especially if you really get into the rich histories of indigenous groups. Like in Hawaii, they uh, have a tradition of making poi from the um, fermented elephant ear plants. And um, important to realize that some of those are suitable for that, and the different kinds of taro, basically, and other ones, not so much. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a really rich history all over the world. Basically, you go, you'll see something out there. And, of course, in Asia, there is uh, a very, very deep tradition of uh, things that might be you know more complexity there than pretty much anywhere in the okay. world. Okay, so maybe we have a, a listener who this is very new to them. Um, what are the simple components of making uh, uh, fermented vegetable? You need a jar? Right. I mean, in, at its simplest, it can really be just a mason jar, like a quart mason jar, a pint mason jar, uh, something to realize that is a basic distinction between different ferments is um, the idea of aerobic in the, in the presence of air or anaerobic ferments that happen outside the presence of air. And so the anaerobic ones like uh, sauerkraut would be a classic one. Then you're going to need to have some kind of lid and there's all sorts of things that you can put inside your jar to press down on the items that you're fermenting but you want them to typically if they're anaerobic to be beneath the surface of liquid because then that will keep all the air out and um, basically keep them from spoiling and uh, typically you're going to also have uh, especially with the sauerkraut or pickles a salt component as well. So it can be just as simple as some vegetables, some salt in a jar, and a way to keep those vegetables under the uh, the brine, if you will, which could be even a clean rock, or they make all sorts of little spacers, and um, so all and, sorts of little and, things and you liquid, can put on top. The liquid that you put in is? Well, that is uh, an interesting one, because... Uh, Ideally, you don't actually need to add liquid, but it really depends on the freshness of what you're working with. Because, of course, if it's not very fresh, then um, it will have dehydrated some and you might need to add some liquid. And, um, yeah, that's probably one of the trickier things is to kind of know when to do that if you need to, right? Because if you add it 
proactively ahead of time, basically a, a salt water solution, then um, you might overdo it and then it's going to spill out everywhere. So ideally you would have all your stuff immersed in liquid uh, within like 24 hours or, or at a salt solution. And, and then there's uh, this component, uh, uh, whether natural or, or induced yeast, to make the fermentation process? Well, that, that kind of depends. And um, you know, a lot of fermentation is bacterial as well, especially, for instance, um, you know, with some of the, the vinegar-making organisms. It's both a bacterial and fungal, which yeast are more from the fungal realm. And, um, yeah, that's the case in your kombuchas. And a lot of things with scobies are going to have some of, of both but for alcohol it's going to be just yeast and um that's one reason why that's anaerobic and you make it outside the presence of oxygen because if it gets exposed to oxygen it might get some of the bacteria that will turn the alcohol into vinegar and, and, and that's um, the natural process is to expose it to air and let the bacterium uh Right, and like a lot of ferments will benefit from adding a starter culture, a little bit of a previous batch. So with um, vinegar, you have the mother of vinegar, which looks very similar to uh, the scoby of kombucha, for anybody familiar with that. And then that's going to make it go faster, but it will naturally occur, especially if you more stir it as well. And depending on the surface area, if you're really trying to go from alcohol to vinegar, you would have more a wide opening with um, still a covering of cheesecloth or something to keep out, you know, insects and dirt, but um, allow those microbes to settle and then and stir it uh, periodically. So it kind of just depends on what ferment you're doing. And are we talking about uh, exposed to sun outside or inside uh, storage? Right, right. On um, the conditions can be important in general fermentation doesn't really like to happen in full strong sun and it's better off in uh, both cooler places and places that are out of at least direct sunlight and a uh, big thing to be aware of is the idea that the um, basically the temperature and the the length of time it takes for the fermentation to happen are, are connected Right, so basically the higher the temperature, then the faster the fermentation goes. Like the difference between fermenting at 80 degrees versus 70 degrees is, is very big. You know, it might go from, you know, taking a couple months at 70 to a couple weeks at 80. And then similarly... Uh, and this yeah. is the outside temperature, not the oven. Well, it just kind of depends. So that's what I was kind of getting at as far as the environment goes. But... Um, just to finish that kind of idea that 60 things will go a lot slower than 70 and 50 pretty much most fermentation doesn't really happen below 50 and then similarly at the high end uh, above 90 and certainly above 100 most things don't ferment and so you can kind of really vary the action of the fermentation by where you place it in your house like if you place it more on the south facing side or near the wood stove or the heat source, whatever that might be, then 
that's going to make things go faster if you place it, you know, on the north face side of the house, um, then slower. And of course you could also insulate them with blankets or sleeping bags. So kind of just depends. It seems like for me, the biggest issue with temperature is in the winter time with not having it be too cold because I often will inhabit spaces that the temperature fluctuates a lot and can be kind of chilly even inside. Yeah. So let's, uh, uh, recount, uh, as we're coming up to the first half hour, uh, if you wanted to do your own fermentation, so we have a glass jar and we have some, uh, vegetables to put into the glass jar. Uh, we have to determine whether we're going to do it with air or without air. And we have to make, uh, the, it would be nice if we had a thermometer that could tell us what the temperature was. Uh, well, to some degree, I mean, it wouldn't hurt, but I wouldn't say that's necessary. Like, really, it's about whatever you want to ferment. And um, if you're going to make like a sauerkraut or, or pickles or something, it's going to be anaerobic. And um, I would say a lot of things in general, you would tend to uh, have it be that way other than like a vinegar, like I was talking about, um, or kombuchas, um, those types of things definitely could be aerobic. And then, and then um, you would need a cheesecloth. Some cheesecloth or like a, just a clean cloth, um, but something that's permeable that will allow for air and gas exchange, but will keep out critters and, you know, particulate matter. And um, salt is going to, as I would say, be uh, you know, part of especially the sort of sauerkraut kimchi and um, even like some of the kvasses. And, and is that um, a pinch? Well, it just all depends, and um, you know, I'm happy to help people out a little bit, and I know we're going to talk about more resources, but it just kind of depends with the salt. But the, the bigger thing I want to put out there is that you want non-iodized salt, right? because iodine is an inhibitor to microbes. So uh, non-iodized salt, and if you are using water, uh, you need to use water, then you want non-chlorinated water, right? Because once again, the chlorine inhibits microbes. So that's just something to think about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we've, we've taken it uh, down the track a little bit here. Um, and um, let me just say that this is uh, Plants and Their Friends. On WART 95.5 on your FM dial. And we are uh, taping from the caboose down on Main Street in downtown Marshall. Uh, you can uh, locate podcasts of the show at www.ncgoldenseal.com. And uh, we welcome... Uh, Mark Williams uh, here, uh, and we have been talking about fermentation. Um, let's uh, talk about uh, how you feel about probiotics 
versus uh, fermented foods. Yeah, I think that um, the jury is kind of out some degree on the the food aspect. The thing with the probiotics, especially that you'd buy at the stores, oftentimes they've benefited from different types of studies and uh, have been shown to have some beneficial effect, and yet they are typically very you know, small in relation to the overall diversity that is out there, both uh, within ourselves, our own, as they call it, the microbiome, the collection of microbes that inhabit our body. There are thousands of different species, and uh, oftentimes with the probiotics you would get at the store, it's, you know, maybe a handful or two. And uh, to some degree, though, at the same time, that's similar with this whole host of different fermented foods, it's really not a super duper diverse array of various microbes that do a lot of that fermentation. Like with uh, alcohol in particular, it's one particular species, Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae, that they use uh, to make beer or wine or mead. And, um, yeah, so I guess the the real big question is how do these microbes, however prolific and diverse they might be, go between being consumed and the digestive process and the gut and the super low pH into the digestive tract where, um, you know, in the intestines where you would really want a proliferation of of good microbes. And so that feels like it's a little bit hard to characterize, but uh, people are, are able to work more and more with not needing to look at um, the microbes in a physical form, like through a microscope, but they can actually analyze for their presence through DNA signatures. And uh, so it's a real big open realm of research right now, the benefits that you can get from these things. But certainly... Um, it can't hurt and I think at the same time it's real important to understand that if you take a bunch of antibiotics that just taking some probiotics isn't necessarily going to just make it all better like right away because um, there's such a diversity of different microbes that we basically coexist with and and so that this process takes a while it takes a while, and um, it's hard to say, you know, the overall effect of courses of antibiotics on this broad spectrum of other microbes. We know, you know, the bad things that it's taking out that we want it to do that work for, but um, the effects on all the other good things and how long it takes them to proliferate is, um, you know, area of active study. And something that one of our teenagers in the audience might find uh, fascinating to get involved with because this knowledge will come out. And yeah, the yeah. Pe people around here have some of the better beginnings than others uh, uh, in many places. Yeah, the work with the microbiome is um, a real active area of research and um, 
just here locally in Western North Carolina in regards to fermentation, we're really lucky we have some institutional resources with the Asheville Buncombe Community College and uh, their craft beverage institute that's teaching people about fermentation around alcohol and um, then also at Appalachian State University they have a whole four-year degree program in fermentation oh that's your alumni that's true that's my alma mater I'm an alumni of that uh, institution up in Boone so um, there's uh, really some great academic resources and then of course there's just a host of various different businesses and um also events like we had this whole fermentation festival that happened in marshall last year that's been happening for a little while Uh, Mm -hmm. yeah you you were there i was there what what was it like it was great there was a uh, host of uh, different educational offerings around various different ferments that uh, folks could make at home and then a lot of vendors, basically kind of most anybody who's anybody in the whole realm of uh, fermentation locally. And uh, we mentioned uh, a number of them, but there's also like a, we have our purifier folks that uh, make uh, these really nice kind of like fire cider vinegar things and serotonin ferments and locally good and fermenti and buddha and uh, smiling hara and sweet those are all local companies yeah soulshine farm these are all uh, companies that were vending there at the fermentation festival and uh, a number of those uh, folks i think of meredith lee who i haven't mentioned so far um so she's another one as well as some of these other folks that offered some different classes and Meredith is really uh, you know, a wizard at the um, fermenting of meat, you know. So there's this very long-held tradition in this area and, of course, other parts of the world of making different kinds of prosciuttos and salamis and, and all these cured meats, which is uh, another form of fermentation as well, oftentimes. Wow, yeah. That, mm-hmm. That's something I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So salami is a fermentation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you would have your smokehouse oftentimes, right? And so part of it is using these certain kinds of wood and the smoke from the wood. And, of course, once again, using salt. So it's a, a multi-part thing, but part of that curing process is this fermentation that happens. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. Uh, let's, uh, so, so that was here in Marshall, uh, on the island mm-hmm. and was there a small fee for that? It wasn't on the island this time. Mm-hmm. It was at the, um, cooperative extension. One oh, that's of right. Offices. That's yeah. right. The mm-hmm. cooperative extension. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, yeah, I don't think there was a fee. At least part of it was open. There might have been some fee-related activities. Well, if it's ag extension, I can see where there right. wouldn't be a fee. Right. Yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe they hit the vendors for a couple of bucks, but donation, right. something like that. Yeah. 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 That would be and 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 I guess uh, they got feedback on whether to have another one of those coming up. Uh, yeah, I think that 
was um it was my first time but i feel like it's happened before and my sense was that it would happen again and certainly that's a flourishing sector of our local food scene here are the the fermented products and something that i feel like we really are providing a template and a model for other communities around the country and having uh a jennery and having you know multiple kombucha places and um, making our own tempeh and making our own miso and making all of these different vinegar-based products and um, of course cheese is a whole other realm of uh, fermentation as well that we're really lucky to have some good examples of so um, yeah that's really a neat thing that we that we have going in western North Carolina that way. Yeah, hip hip for ag extension. I don't get to say that very much. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, with all their spraying. But um, let's uh, move on to um, uh, let, uh, uh, letting the audience uh, uh, get some of your uh, sources mm-hmm. for uh, further learning here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, you know, part of it is about equipment, and we mentioned that in regards to you can use mason jars, but you can quickly outgrow mason jars, and so they do make bigger vessels, and I tend to try to work with glass um, or ceramic, but something I realize is if you pick up like an old ceramic, what's called a crock, at um like the goodwill or you know some thrift store and it was all cracked then those cracks might expose the um metals which are part of some of the old glazes to your ferment and the ferment being acidic it can act as a solvent to pull those out so this is not uh something to economize on uh you can buy those things new and and i think they've changed the production process over time as well but um yeah you have specialized kind of homestaying stores like villagers that are going to have things like that and you have um you know more kitchen company type uh places and as far as actually getting the cultures you can get those at villagers or um fifth season is another uh, brewing supply place and um and also a company that has a lot of the actual equipment if you wanted to go more into the two-gallon, three-gallon, five-gallon size. and um, That's the fifth season, people. Yeah, fifth season. And they have uh, a, uh, a little bar there now uh, at fifth season where you can okay. try some of these uh, out. Uh, they have beer and wine, but they also have some uh, other products there. Um, wow pretty sure okay yeah i haven't been there in a little while um we mentioned sander Katz, and he kind of has this very core kind of foundational text called wild fermentation that's definitely kind of one of my initial bibles as it were for the subject and then he expanded a number of years ago into a much bigger tome called the art of fermentation and so I would say those are kind of two of the best books. Um, at the same time, there are a ton of other great authors, and in particular, one from out west named Pascal, and his last name is B-A-U-D-A-R. 
he uh, has a series of books from Chelsea Green that are amazing about incorporating wild food elements specifically into fermentation. And that's something that I'm really excited about, especially um, making use of things like exotic invasive plants and basically looking at them as this potential problem, but then turning them into a resource and, uh, and a benefit by um, harnessing their nutritive power making them into sauerkraut or something like that. And so uh, Pascal writes uh, a good bit on that. And um, yeah, I know that for me coming up, um, I'm going to be talking more about this. The next opportunity in person will be at the Organic Growers School. Oh, yes. That's coming up, folks, the Organic Growers School. So this will be time sensitive uh, for those people who are, uh, when we re redo do this it may not be uh as pertinent but uh this will be airing this saturday mm -hmm. and the uh, date is the fourth and fifth more like sixth seventh eighth but it's the yeah. first week of march yeah seventh eighth that's right yeah and that's pretty much every year it's been some time in early-ish march right and and, and, um, and we're, we're in madison county folks yeah at uh Mars Hill University. Yeah, that's where the Organic Grower School is happening, is at Mars Hill. This year. Yeah. yeah, and there will be classes specifically about fermentation. The class I'm doing is with uh, Dr. Janine Davis, a panel discussion on food forests. So I'll be focusing a little bit more on the food that you can find in forests and then what do you do with it, like value-added products for instance, and fermentation being an element of that. I would especially make a plug, something that I'm starting to see a little bit nascently here in Asheville, but I think has a lot of room for growth are um, these vinegar-based products. Once again, like the shrubs and the oxymels and um, basically extracting flavors and even medicinal components into vinegar and then flavoring those vinegars potentially with honey uh, using that as a, like a cocktail mixer or what you might call a mocktail mixer, you know, so it doesn't have alcohol. Um, or you can use them for salad dressings. Lots of really cool applications of that. And, um, of course, the vinegar, as I mentioned earlier, comes from alcohol. We have uh, still a lot of apples in particular in this area. So the idea of the kind of farm-to-table apples to vinegar to then these really neat types of beverages because um a realm even here where we're pretty hip we have a, a lot of room for growth and exploration with that kind of product yes uh, value added is the way to go uh, for making money instead of selling the raw products to folks mm -hmm. um and um it uh, uh i would like uh, uh just those people who who do uh, hear this program and decide to come to the Organic Grower School, please stop by my table. Uh, we'll have a table there uh, this year, and uh, we're going to have uh, a number of unique uh, products that we uh, don't always have, uh, including, I hope, a bunch of pawpaw trees uh, for sale. Um, and uh, we have Jayugalon tincture also this year. Uh, as well as Gouda Cola capsules. 
Okay, let's get back to the fermentation. Um, uh, your uh, web uh, information and Facebook information? Right. So I work for this nonprofit we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Plants and Healers International, and that is continuing the work of Frank Cook. And um, basically the tagline of our mission being to advance human culture and harmony with the natural world. So part of that is certainly educating the public about fermentation. And so uh, our website is the www.plantsandhealers.org one that I mentioned earlier, but there's also a Facebook component to that organization. And then also I have a kind of a sister website, Botany Every Day, where I continue an online class that I inherited from Frank that he did for nine years, and I'm in my 10th year now. And so there are some components on that website, botanyeveryday.com, around fermentation. There's recipes, both of those uh, websites and Facebook components to both of them. And so that's uh, an area where folks could follow up with me. I also want to do a plug for Living Web Farm and their incredible collection of videos that they have. Because I've taught there a number of times, not ever specific to fermentation, but touching on different aspects of it. But then a whole host of lots of amazing teachers have taught there a number of different focused classes on fermentation and so people can go to living web farm which is uh over in mills river so if uh, folks are local to western north carolina you could attend those classes in person but um pretty much all the classes are are videoed and then archived online as well right uh i'm going to be getting involved with lisa uh, uh just a, a little heads up to folks we're going to be uh, at Madison Extension to do a Golden Seal media event. Uh, both Mark and I will be there along with 34 other people uh, to talk about Golden Seal and try and make that into a, a program that uh, we can successfully farm in our forests. Okay, well, let's see if we can uh, wrap up uh, some of the things we've told these people about fermentation. Uh, I don't mind repeating right now some of the, the main points. But, sure, know. yeah, and of course um, there's always more unpacking of the complexity and so we kind of talked just a little bit at the front end about basically kind of why ferment, like and that it's this really important technology for cultures all over the world and um, there's this aspect of the food preservation but what does that really mean you know we kind of talked about probiotics but what does that really mean and so um, it's really got a lot of layers to it right because you have this idea of microbes that are good for us and that's what we often think of as probiotics right but we also have um, microbes that everybody has heard of like e coli and salmonella that can cause us illness and if you think about this idea that nature adores a vacuum if we create an open space 
it's going to get filled with something. And oftentimes we have these kind of, you know, semi-sterile environments or environments where we've removed a lot of the every the life forms basically through you know say pasteurization or something like that and so it's good initially but eventually something's going to want to come and and spoil that or, or change it if you have these live microbes there then they can hold off the bad things they can keep them at bay basically you know they're like this place is full there's no space for you right beyond that though we have these microbes that make these great um, products, you know, these secondary products of, of their process and um, are also helping to aid the digestion by breaking down the food ahead of time before you're even eating it. It's already been kind of pre-digested to some degree. And you also have through this process of fermentation, this other benefit of the breaking down of um, various different compounds that are um, what you might think of as anti-nutrients, right? So like phytic acid is something that um, will kind of take away. It can be deleterious, but it's broken down through the process of fermentation. So um, it's really complicated, you know, this idea that sounds so simple of, you know, probiotics and that it's good for you, but there's a lot of different levels. And there's also prebiotics, which are the foods that feed the good microbes, right? And so if you're thinking about your fermentation, you're thinking about the things that you might want to incorporate into that. Um, one kind of greater group that people can be uh, pretty familiar with already is, um, this group of plants that are in what's called the aster family or the sunflower family. And they have the sugar called inulin and inulin is this prebiotic that feeds the good probiotic microbes. And you can find inulin in common plants like the dandelion, which you can find as a weed around in a lot of areas or burdock as well as, um, some more like commonly cultivated, uh, plants like Jerusalem artichoke. So there's this kind of process of fermentation, which I really posit is fundamental to being human and um, ideally a skill that at least on the, you know, community, as we say around here, holler level, you know, from like, you know, the average group of families is the skill that people could have, but then once you kind of have the keys to that kingdom of fermentation as a skill, there's this whole palette of various different ingredients you could be playing with and, and all of those bring their own individual stories to how they might help you as food, as medicine. And, um, we're really lucky to have a lot of teachers locally in this area that explore that as well as of course a lot of people that are making these kind of products at the commercial scale well uh you've hit a couple of uh really important uh areas uh that we've been talking about here uh edible weeds really really important to get into our diet and if this is a way of getting it in especially in the winter time you 
get get it and make it in the spring and fall, and then you can use it in the winter uh, as part of uh, eating something wild each day, or as we've now started to talk about eating every something wild at every meal, not just each day. Uh, so those are really important areas for me uh, to uh, uh, wake up the eyes uh, uh, and see what's around us. Yeah. Really important. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, there's also these other components to it that go beyond thinking about you know, particular micro species or particular compounds that are good for you or ones that are not good for you that are broken down. There's this whole aspect around ritual and, and spirituality and um, certainly something people would be familiar with in particular in relation to wine in um, the Jewish faith tradition and the Christian faith tradition oftentimes. And yet I think... Um, can really transcend that to be something that people can tailor to fit their own personal practice of life, of celebrating the seasons, certain special areas, and certain special people, and certain special times of year, and especially with the brewing of the honey wine, um, we have this community of hundreds of people that will... Uh, you know, for instance, do their brewing or their bottling or some form of the process of making a ferment on the full moon or on the new moon or on the spring equinox or on the winter solstice um, or various other holidays. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, those are important uh, for us to uh, enjoy the moments that we're here uh, together as community. And let the uh, uh, good uh, medicine flow through the community in celebration. Uh, and, and fermentation has in the past and is in the present part of that worldwide. Right. And I think that's a good segue, too, in thinking about some of the really more famous ferments. Some people might not even be familiar with the idea of them as fermented products but um, things like coffee and chocolate and tea in the sense of camellia sinensis uh, that comes from Asia these are all things that benefit through the process of fermentation and um, of course there's some of the most largely traded goods in the world and yet uh, times can have a real dark history and even um, present story about how they're cultivated, how they are harvested, um, you know, what kind of labor conditions are involved with their production. And so I would just really um, ask that people think about that sort of backstory piece too, right? I mean, a common statement is this idea that uh, you are what you eat. And that, you know, in one way is nutrients and minerals and vitamins and, and these types of things. And I think at the same time, there is this other component of the story that is embodied within that food product, whatever it might be. And um, you have this idea with things like coffee or with chocolate or tea that they could be fair trade and 
and organic and, and um, you know, Rainforest Alliance approved and things like that, or they can be, you know, more conventional and um, kind of like really treated as commodities. And, um, and sometimes then the lowest common denominator of, you know, um, compensation to both the people involved in the production process, but also in the balancing of uh, what's taken versus given back to the land. Well, yes, this is really it. important because uh, two lessons here. Number one, if you're getting it commercially, the, uh, the race to the bottom is happening and your health is at risk. Uh, the other side of it is grow your own, look outside your door, Look at these uh, edible uh, medicinal weeds and use them into into your diet to uh, move away from the commercialism of uh, of food, which uh, right now we don't have a very good record of. Yeah, and I think also a thing that can go along with that is the idea of quality versus quantity. You know, so I definitely grew up on all sorts of you know really conventional type dietary practices, but. Um, I've over time evolved, for instance, with chocolate in particular, that I would rather have a small quantity of high quality chocolate than a whole bunch of chocolate that literally might um, have been produced with slave labor in the west coast of Africa, which people aren't really necessarily familiar with, that that's not just a thing of the past, that there's ongoing forcing of little kids you know into these very compromised situations to then benefit on the other end other kids and other places in the form of candy right and so um just trying to kind of think about that we're not going to be able to grow chocolate here anytime soon (laughs) right so um these are just things to be aware of and to understand the privilege involved with um being able to have these types of things from so far away even well uh thank you uh it looks like we're going to have to end this very uh educational uh session uh uh ending it on chocolate uh is always a great uh place to be so i want uh i want to thank mark williams with plant healers international uh you will do very well if you uh, take a class from him uh, one of the best in the area, uh, and we'd love to see everybody at the Organic Grower School. This is Plants and Their Friends. Have a great week. <laughs> Bahujonehe <laughs> <laughs>